okay, but, <laughs> but it's over. <laughs> and that's what we said. It's over. No. Yeah. Matt, everybody. <laughs> hey, good morning. So gas prices are going up. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> it's news. I know it's news to everybody. So with gas prices going up, obviously there's been, a, there's been for a long time an interest in finding different sources of alternative sources for fuel and energy. And obviously we've had electric cars for a while now, but you know, I mean, the electricity for the car has to come from somewhere, and that's usually through burning of fossil fuels. So in terms of the planet, it's kind of a, you know, the benefits are sort of offset there. So there are alternatives to burning fossil fuel that everybody has been investigating. Well, not everybody. I haven't been, but other people have been investigating. There's solar energy. Obviously, we've, we're making massive pushes for that. There's turbine, wind energy. Uh, but there are other things that are being explored that I found fascinating. One company is looking into sound waves, using sound waves as a means of producing energy. And they're in the early stages of this. But I just thought that was intriguing because I never would have associated sound with energy. But then I think about when I was, you know, in high school and I'd turn my stereo up and I'd watch those cones moving. And I thought, well, yeah, maybe there's some energy in there after all. There's actually a device that you can buy right now that can recharge your cell phone by harnessing the wind power from your breathing. So you could actually take a nap and charge your cell phone, which I think is kind of the penultimate claim to laziness. But I was also thinking that we could probably power the entire country if we hooked one of those up to a senator during a filibuster. We'd be flying all over the place. Another idea that caught my attention was was utilizing the energy generated on dance floors at clubs because there's so much energy being produced there and they're looking at how they could and the scenarios that popped into my mind from that like dad can i borrow the car only if you go to the club to dance first the car doesn't power itself you know so power it's an intriguing thing power comes from surprising places and really that's the core of what the message of the kingdom of god is all about power from unexpected sources And we're going to be taking a look at that today. Uh, We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app and you want to follow along, find your way over to Luke chapter 18, please. We're going to finish that chapter up today. Last week, we read about Jesus blessing the children and challenging that rich religious leader uh, in in a section that showed the upside-downness of God's kingdom at work in this world and how we were being challenged to embrace the upside-down values that he represents to us. And now we're heading into the final stages of Luke's gospel. The narrative is leading us towards Jerusalem where Jesus will die and then be raised from the dead. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling. We've talked about this before. We're in the section, we're finishing up the section called the travel narrative in Luke. He's been traveling with a large group of pilgrims from Galilee to Jerusalem to celebrate the annual Passover ceremony. And as they go, Jesus is going to take 12 of his closest disciples aside and he's going, to, he's going to share with them what it is that's going to be taking place there. He's going to predict what's going to happen in Jerusalem and then he's going to put his power on display, to his power to restore uh, in the very last healing miracle that we'll read about from Luke's account of Jesus. It, it all works together, once again, to, to drive home the nature 
of God's kingdom at work in this world, which we'll continue to be considering today. It's a, it's a theme that gets repeated a lot, uh, you know, within the gospel, within the New Testament. It's a theme that gets repeated a lot because it's a theme that gets forgotten a lot, especially as we look back through church history. So in my thinking, repetition really can't hurt in this case. So if you are there in Luke chapter 18, we'll also put it on the screens. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 31. It says, talking to the 12 disciples, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He'll be handed over to the Romans and he'll be mocked, treated shamefully and spit upon. They'll flog him with a whip and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. But they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. Okay, so here we have in Luke's gospel, the sixth direct allusion to Jesus's death. And it appears right on the heels of announcing that he's about to fulfill everything that the prophets had said about him uh, concerning the Son of Man. Now, the, the, the term the Son of Man was a messianic term. Everybody associated with, with Messiah. It came out of Daniel 7, where we had one of the clearest predictions of this mysterious uh, godly figure who rises up and ascends to heaven. So, uh, you know, in other words, Jesus is saying that all that the prophets of the Old Testament predicted were going to happen at the appearance of Messiah and the day of the Lord is going to come to pass in Jerusalem through Jesus. And that is huge. I mean, that's a lot. Like when we talk about the predictions of the prophets, there's way too much there for us to cover on a Sunday morning. But all through the writings of the Old Testament, starting with the promise made to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then particularly through the writings of the prophets, the forecast was given and, and was telling us of a time when God would come and set all things right. He'd restore this broken world and he would deliver his people from the oppression that they'd known. So this is a big deal that Jesus is saying something like this. I can imagine that his disciples, when he first starts talking, are really stoked. They're like, you know, getting ready to high five each other. You're like, yeah, this is all coming to pass. And then he gets to the second part and they freeze mid high five and they're like, wait, flogging and what? What did you say about this? The reaction to this news is that they're completely befuddled. And we can't blame them at all for that. We would have been too, because none of this was part of their thinking when it came to what Messiah was going to be doing, what it was that Messiah would do to restore this world. How, I mean, how can Messiah meet this sort of fate? How can the Son of Man establish the throne that Daniel was talking about if he's going to die? How can that happen if he's dead? What nobody could have guessed what nobody could have guessed, what we so often forget is that Christ's throne was two beams of wood fastened together and his reign was revealed through suffering. And yet, you know, here it is. This, it's the central theme of the New Testament and the gospel in particular. And that is that God's restorative power is demonstrated through sacrificial love. When Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, predicted the appearance of Messiah, it was a strange revelation that he gave in Isaiah 53. He saw the Messiah as a suffering servant who took the whole consequence of sin 
to himself. He was wounded for our sins. He was bruised for our transgressions. It was a graphic forecast of Christ's sacrifice for us. But when the prophecy began, it started with this phrase, who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And that phrase, the arm of the Lord, is speaking about God's revealed strength and power. You talk about, you know, you strip back your arm, you're showing your strength in this. To whom has God's strength and power been revealed? And the alarming thing is that that took everybody by surprise was that God would reveal his strength and power through sacrifice, through sacrificial love, by laying down his life and taking our place, taking the consequence of our sin to himself so that we would be delivered from death and cleansed from the corruption that we've known in this broken world. Through the power of his sacrificial love, he doesn't, he doesn't coerce us or force us into submission through heavy religious constraints. That was never what he did. He transforms us. He changes us and restores us to our original purpose, transforming us from the inside out. That is something that no tactic of force could ever accomplish. Like you can take over a group of people and you can force them into conformity, but you will never be able to force this sort of reaction, this sort of transformation of the heart, of our values, of our principles, of our perspective of the world. As followers of Jesus' upside-down kingdom, we have to always remember that power over others through force is not God's program. And that certainly means that as the church, we're not going to employ those tactics either. We are followers of Jesus. And Jesus lays down his life for others. Jesus lays down his life for his enemies and speaks forgiveness on the ones who do him harm. Christ's throne, his demonstration of God's power was a cross. And Paul described it in Colossians 2.15. In this way, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. It was and is and always will be sacrificial love that overcomes this world and changes and restores it, always. Now, the disciples, like we so often are, were blind to this because it failed to meet their expectations. Because once again, this isn't how things work. We're talking about a kingdom. Jesus is establishing a kingdom. Kingdoms don't work like that. You can't have that working that way. How in this world could this ever change anything? But there, there it is. This is the upside downness of God's kingdom, the, the completely unexpected way in which God reveals himself and moves in this world to change and to heal and to fix things like he did in our own lives and in our own hearts. The disciples were blind to it, but we're going to move on to a section now and we're going to meet an actual blind man who could see more clearly than they were able to. It's, it's a beautiful bit of irony that Luke throws in here for us. Chapter, I mean, uh, verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho... A blind beggar was sitting beside the road. When he heard the noise of a crowd going past, he asked, what's happening? They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was going by. So he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, I wrote that. but Be quiet, the people in front yelled at him. But he only shouted louder. 
son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and ordered that the man be brought to him. Okay, so Jesus and those that he's traveling with, they're, they're now within 15 miles of Jerusalem. It's about an eight-hour walk from this point. Jericho was the place, if you, if you remember, if you're familiar at all with the biblical narrative, uh, where the Israelites had their first battle when they were entering into the promised land. You remember the story? The walls come tumbling down. The first, uh, the first Yeshua, Joshua, or Jesus, as it's transliterated to us, had the priests blow the trumpets and the walls fell down and the Israelites were able to move freely into that territory. Now, the, that city... The, from from the Old Testament was long gone by Jesus' day. A new one had been built just to the south of it by the Jewish people. There was a road that the Romans had built that ran from Jericho to Jerusalem, so it's very likely this is what they're on, the Roman road uh, that, that passes through there. So in our story, sitting just outside of Jericho on that road, a blind beggar has situated himself to ask for alms from the pilgrims that are going by to celebrate Passover. And it's a smart location to choose, if you think about it, because people that are on their way to a national religious observance are going to be more likely to be generous as they go, right? And so it's a smart move on his part. But I try to imagine this guy. I mean, I think about that. It, it's, it's very difficult to have this sort of impairment in our modern world. Nobody wants to try to function like that. But we still have so many technologies and services to help aid people in that kind of a situation. But in the ancient world, there were no such things at all. An impairment like this in the ancient world was only going to ensure a very painful and arduous kind of existence. He was probably dirty and most likely very unkempt and unpleasant to look at. Most of all, he was an outsider to normalized society, to to the status quo that was there. He wasn't on his way to Jerusalem. <laughs> I mean, even if he got there, he couldn't go into the temple to, for any of the observances. In Jesus' day, the leaders had interpreted Leviticus 21.17 to mean that blind and lame people weren't allowed to enter in to the temple courts. All he could do was beg from the seeing for just enough money to keep on existing in this state until Jesus came along. And it says that when he heard that Jesus was coming, he cried for his attention. So he must have heard something before about this Jesus, right? I mean, that's the only thing that makes sense. He must have heard stories about the things that he was able to do. But even more significant, he calls out to Jesus, assigning the title to him, Son of David, which again is a messianic term. This Messiah was going to come from the line of David, was going to be through that, that kingly line. So to refer to him as the, as the son of David means that he's confessing. He's calling out and confessing, Jesus, I see, you as, I see you as Messiah. Most importantly, he cries out for mercy. The word Eliejo means to, to provide aid for the pitiful, to help those who are helpless. And so here is our picture of Messiah, the king of God's kingdom, not a general marching with a determination to start a war, but a healer who stops a whole procession in order to bring healing to one who needs mercy. Luke wants us to get the picture of what God's kingdom is like, what it's like when God comes to do his will on earth like it's done in heaven. And the first thing we realize as we consider this picture 
is that God's restorative power is revealed in mercy for the helpless. And it's a stark contrast to who we read about last week, the rich religious leader who had everything and he felt pretty good about his own merits when he came to Jesus. But this blind beggar on the roadside outside of Jerusalem represents the heart of who it is that God has his eye on, who it is that God intends to establish his kingdom through. This man was desperate. There was no place else for him to turn. And much like the tax collector from the parable a few weeks back, he didn't call out to Jesus and start listing off all the reason that he was really pretty good and, you know, should get something from God. He didn't insist that he deserved a break because he was owed something by the universe somewhere. No, in humility born from an honest recognition of who he was and where he was, he cries out for mercy. Have mercy on me. He wasn't assuming any self-sufficiency. He didn't ask for assistance. Hey, Jesus, give me a hand over here. No, he asked for mercy. And you know, that's a, that's a problem for a lot of people. I've heard way too many people over the years say really foolish things like, well, I got to get some things together in my life and then I'll try to connect with God. I, I just, you know, I have to fix a few things and then I'll start praying again. And my response to that always is, no, you won't. No, you won't. If we try to wait until we don't have need of God, then we're never going to come to him. No, the heart that God looks for, the heart that has the key to God's kingdom says, I can't fix this on my own. I can't get myself right. I can't get my act together. And no one else can do this for me except God. I was, I was talking to, to Mike earlier this morning and he was talking about there's a famous prayer or a famous uh, set of steps where you, you begin by recognizing that you're powerless over, you know, this or that substance. And he was saying, you know, honestly, there should just be a period after that. I, I am powerless, period. <laughs> and then everything begins to fall into place. We realize our dependence and our need for God. God's always on the lookout for people who are humble and broken and ready to follow him because Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. People who acknowledge our own salvation and our hope is way beyond our ability to conjure up somehow. That's who the kingdom of God has come for. This beggar crying out for mercy is just what Jesus is listening for. And I'll tell you, sometimes the, the... Our best prayer isn't what we can formulate so eloquently, you know, to impress God somehow, but just a simple cry for help, (laughs) help, that's it, or mercy, Jesus. We see what effect that has. I remember talking to someone who had been taught that if you're going to spend time in in prayer, that you need to get your your thoughts organized and, 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 you know, speak, you know, ready to speak so, you know, you're not going to waste God's time. And and this person labored under that. You know, I'm not ready to pray. I haven't been able to put my thoughts together. As though God isn't already listening to this jumbled mess we call a heart and, and a mind. Like as if God's saying, bup, 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 come back when I can understand you, if you don't mind. No, thank God. When there was a simple cry for mercy, Jesus heard it. Jesus hears you. Jesus hears me when we cry out for that. 
In this story, I sort of imagine, you know, they're all walking along and this guy calls out for mercy and Jesus hears it and he stops and boom, 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 everybody plows into him. As he, and, and, and the narrative says that the, the people at the front of the procession scolded him and told him to shut up. And it doesn't explain why, uh, why they did that. We can assume why. You know, they didn't want to, they didn't want to interrupt Jesus as he was going about the stuff that they expected him to do. And, you know, they had expectations to be met here. You know, like the di- disciples, uh, that was last week where they were shooing the children away. You know, let's keep some order here. Let's keep these little kids out of, out of this. You know, this is like them saying, Jesus is busy. He's got important, you know, Messiah stuff to do. Don't bother him with your petty stuff. You want to interrupt this busy Messiah as he's doing this thing. But the beggar wasn't intimidated by that. And clearly, neither was Jesus. And we learn something wonderful from this brief part of the story. And that is that God's mercy is not influenced by the world's assessment of our value. And we've talked about this a lot as we've gone through the scriptures and through the gospels. But the world's systems have their way of seeking out the brightest and the best. The world effectively screens out those who are unpleasant and we don't want to have to deal with or are disturbing or unattractive or unuseful to the status quo. And, and the ones that, you know, the status quo finds offensive. And there are a lot of voices in our culture that try to tell us what our value is or what our value isn't. Shut up is basically what we hear most of the time. Shut up. You're being basic. And this blind guy, if he'd have listened to the crowds, if he'd have listened to that assessment, well, he probably would have shrunk down, he'd have stayed quiet, but he'd have also stayed blind. But instead, he insisted on mercy. And clearly, Jesus had no interest in public opinion at that point. <laughs> no opinion about who he should be stopping for and who he should show mercy to. And, you know, you can even imagine the people around him. Jesus, this guy, I mean, come on, he's kind of messy. Can we find somebody a little more appealing to minister to? There's got to be a celebrity here in Jericho somewhere. If we could get a celebrity on board, then we'd have something. But the blind man's need for God's grace makes him the most appealing kind of person to God's kingdom. God doesn't allow public opinion to define his mercy or to dictate his grace. Looking respectable, we've said it before, was never on Jesus' agenda. But loving the unlovely still is that's who he's still looking for let's keep reading verse 40 as the man came near jesus asked him uh what do you want me to do for you lord he said i want to see and jesus said all right receive your sight faith has healed you instantly the man could see and he followed jesus praising god and all who saw it praised god too okay so jesus gets close to this guy and he asks him this curious question. Hey, what, do you, what do you want me to do for you? And people have puzzled over that question probably since the time Jesus said it. Because it is a kind of an odd thing. It seems like it should be obvious what he needs. Why did he ask that? Now, some have proposed that, you know, it's because Jesus wanted him to, to confess. You know, positive confession, confess what it is that you need. Or some things because he wanted the request to be specific because faith has to be spelled out specifically. So, and I've heard this before, like, you know, you claim uh, a Jaguar, but you want a green Jaguar, you might get a blue one because you weren't specific and that's on you. 
I feel like I should wash my mouth out with soap after saying that. But either way, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what he meant. This, this guy wasn't originally, when I think about it, he wasn't originally on the road looking for a miracle, right? Like he didn't show up, get positioned there on that roadway thinking, well, maybe today's the day I get a miracle. What would he most likely been looking for sitting there on the side of the road? Yeah, that's what makes sense. I mean, he, he wanted money. And I personally think that it's very possible that since asking for money was his primary purpose, Jesus wanted to make sure he understood all the possibilities that were involved in this encounter that he was having here. You could have some money, something, you know, that could address your issues in an ancillary way. We got some money. Judas has a money. Well, he had a money bag. I don't know. <laughs> You could have money or or we could get at the source of your trouble. What do you want? And that's wonderful to me because I realize here that the power of God's love and mercy attends to our true needs. And we think about this, this blind man, I mean, he did need money. Everybody needs, he needed money to survive. He, and he was not capable of going out and earning that himself. He was dependent on other people to provide that for him. Uh, I mean, he needed that. But what he needed way more was his eyesight back so that he could then be restored into what it is that he was originally intended for. He set out that day to accomplish one goal and then Jesus showed up and he got to the heart of a bigger goal. And so often, you know, we have the idea about what it is that we think we need in life. We set out to scratch whatever itch that is uh, and we make that our primary focus and we, we set out to ask God to help. Get involved in this, God. Please help. But Christ's mercy pinpoints what our true needs are. It addresses what we really need, spiritual eyesight, the relief that comes from forgiveness, the hope of eternity, the, the, the purpose and wholeness that comes from that restored sense of our humanity. God's mercy doesn't place primacy on band-aids. God's intent, God's purpose always in all things is to set things right, is to put it back the way it was meant to be. Now, the reality is, is that sometimes that doesn't feel like mercy when it's happening. I mean, it did for this guy. He had his eyes restored. But as Jesus intervenes in our lives, we find ourselves confronted with things that Jesus might want to surgically remove. And he's doing it in mercy, but it doesn't always feel like that when it's happening. We may be calling out to Jesus for mercy. We're in a conflict with someone and we're praying, oh, son of David, have mercy on me and smite my coworker because they're so mean to me all the time. And Jesus draws close to us and says, what do you want? What's going to help you? And we gain our sight and we realize, oh, wait, (laughs) I need you to heal me of bitterness. I need you to enable me to forgive and to love my enemies to demonstrate something bigger than what this broken world knows. Initially, listen, that stings. I, I mean, I'm, you know, we got to be honest about that. That stings. But in the long term, for our wholeness, it's God's mercy at work. Those things that convict us, those things that come to light that will address something far deeper than those surface levels. Oh, man, we don't want that. We'll struggle, we'll kick, well... 
I'm not going to say we. I struggle and I kick and I try to explain to God he doesn't fully understand the situation or what I really have going on here. But as so often those arguments go, I lose. (laughs) I end up black and blue from fighting myself in the process. And ultimately I realize, no, you know what's best here. You know what you're doing in my life. You're working all things together for my good in eternity. This is the power of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom has come not to rule through political machinations, not to force its way through by fighting and coercing. God's kingdom has invaded the world with mercy, transforming people like us by loving us. When we believe in Christ, we come awake to who we really are, the people whom God deeply loves. You hear me say it all the time. I ask you to repeat it back to me. You know, that we're loved by God. And when I ask you, who are you? I am loved by God. If we can believe that, it can change our perception. It can change how it is that we view the world around us. It changes our own sense of value. It helps us. It helps us to recognize our place in this big jumbled mess that's going on here. So this morning, let's reach out to God. Let's receive that great love for us. Let's ask him for his mercy and allow him to attend to our true needs. It's not always what we think it is, but let's be open to him to see what he wants. Let's ask for open hearts and minds to what it is he might reveal to us along the way. Because his intent, his intent, always, always is to set things right. His intent for your life and for my life is wholeness. That's what he wants for us. And that's what I want to embrace. Right on? All right, very cool. Will you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for for what it reveals to us about your character, about your nature. I don't think there'll ever come a time in my life where I don't stagger back wondering who you are when I consider the grace and the mercy that you've shown me, the way I see you move in this world. And I know, Lord, I know that just like in the book of Job, I could look around and see a lot that's wrong. There's a lot that's wrong in this broken place. But I have no explanation for what's right apart from you apart from your interaction. And I, by faith, believe, Lord, that you're leading us through as we grasp a hold of this, just like this blind beggar did. Grasp a hold by faith that you're leading us somewhere towards wholeness. I believe that you'll pull us all through to that place where we stand together on the threshold of a new world to find our wholeness and meaning and value in the abyss of your love for us. So drive that home as reality in our hearts. Let it inform our actions. Let it inform how we communicate with each other. Help us be agents of your mercy and your love in this world. I pray that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.